Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Hey, J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Success. The Wi-Fi held up. <laughs> Hold. Hold. My internet is having a touch <laughs> yeah. of the frostbite today. So if you hear sudden mm. starts and stops, that's because I'm a terrible editor. But we'll blame it on the internet. Blame it on the internet. But you could, you could mend the rain. Blame. It was no, that's falling, falling. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> but something that also is appropriate to the season uh, and how mind-numbingly cold <laughs> it is outside. Presumably. I'm sure it's heck not walking out. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I, I believe you. Oh, I'm sure California is a frosty 50 degrees. Oh, it's so <laughs> I had to wear a long sleeve shirt and a light jacket. Did, did, you, was, did you take a dog's lead to work? Yeah. <laughs> No, no, I, I was able to avoid the dog sledding this time, but I, I don't know when it's going to turn. During this year's Stocking Stuffers, we're going to tell you the tale of a dog sled to medical victory, or at least to significant treatment, and we'll tie it into the Iditarod, kind of. But today, it's time for another... Around the world in 80 plagues. All right, all right. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm super excited for this. I, I love these because it's always infectious diseases. And I, I especially love it because, you know, I think I know my ID. And I'm also an ID nerd. So I like to say, oh, you know, I also know my trivia and my history and, you know, the great giants of germ theory and microbiology and everybody who taught us what we know today about infectious diseases. But you always manage to teach me a little something new. So I get excited. About it. it has everything. It's got art. It has animals. It has sick children. It has, well, you know, etymology and Victorian times. Everything we all love, <laughs> all wrapped up. So let's <laughs> let's begin with a work of art 
And it's actually the name, the official name of the painting is Lazario de Tormes. But the name I'm going to be using is for a painting by Francisco de Goya called El Garotillo. And I want you to pull up that painting and just tell me what you see. Describe oh, it for sure. the listening audience at home. Ah, what the hell? Josh, there's an old dude like choking a baby. What's going on here? Okay, I, I see an old mustachioed man. Oh, maybe young. His hair is all black. Um, all right, so you're looking at him, and then there's a kid who's... Oh, he's trapped between the guy's legs, so he's, like, holding him. And this is maybe, like, a three-year-old or something, four or five. Uh, he, it's, it's a very – he's got a creepy grin on his face, the old guy. And he's got his left hand wrapped around the kid's neck like he's just holding him there. And then he's got two fingers, and it looks like he's wrenching the kid's mouth open. Josh, what the hell? Okay, so I feel like we took very different messages from the same painting. What? Yeah, this is uh, this is weird. Okay, so the photo shows an older man restraining a young boy, holding his neck with one hand and inspecting his mouth with two fingers with the other. And it's important that this comes from Spain and was painted by Goya. It's referencing the early 1600s, a time in Spain known as, or specifically 1613, time in Spain known as El Año de los Garatios, or the Year of the Angel of Strangulation. Oh, okay, so now you're tying it around. So, okay, so this is, this is the angel of of strangulation like diphtheria this is the choking yeah disease. the choking disease that used to kill children all over the world and i felt a little bit like i was in an action history movie playing the role of sexy archaeologist hacker because because <laughs> as i went through it okay. turns out that around almost every hundred years you know give or take a few for estimation there's some kind of diphtheria outbreak that comes through and murders all our children and even though we have a perfectly reasonable solution to this, no one listens to the scientists. <laughs> That's always the thing, you know, and then, you know, the disaster movies, right? But, you know, we're kind of living in some disaster movies right now, you know, like people who are anti-vaxxers and global climate change deniers and that kind of thing. They're not listening to the scientists. And I'm, I'm a little scared that I, I want this to be like humankind. I want it to be the feel good movie where the, the plucky little intelligent species kind of pulls it out in the end. But I'm a little scared it's going to turn into it one of these. It feels like dystopian we stopped listening movies. to the scientists around the time of Jurassic Park. And I get that. But maybe, <laughs> maybe science has done a good yeah. thing since then. So let's walk you through some of these. So 1613. El Año de los Garotios, the Angel of Sang or the Year of Strangulations. There was a lot of kids who died in Spain in that year. And so much so that it has lived on in art and novels. And that's one of these paintings happened to remind a Spanish physician of that. But we'll jump 100 years ahead to 1735 and across a continent and across an ocean to Boston, where... Another diphtheria epidemic swept through New England, 
with mm-hmm. entire families dying of the disease. In one New Hampshire town, 32% of children under 10 died of diphtheria with a case fatality ratio almost 40%. That is huge. I mean, even when you consider that old-timey pilgrim towns weren't that big, have maybe a couple thousand people in them, 40% of people who caught this died from it. Is That's a plague among children. Yeah, and it has multiple ways of killing people. We'll talk a little bit about that. That's kind of the reason why diphtheria is so horrible. You think you've gotten away from one manifestation, you know, say in your throat, and then it'll just migrate its asshole self down to the heart. So and that's in kill you that epidemic way. in Spain with an avenging strangling angel. The epidemic in New England taking over 40% of the children. In 1826, over in mm-hmm. France, in the French countryside, this mysterious suffocating disease finally gained its official name. And French physician Pierre Bretonneau called the disease diterite from the Greek word for leather or hide. And let's, let's talk a little bit about that very briefly. Uh, Pierre Bretonneau carried out autopsies on patients affected in the countryside of France mm-hmm. and presented his findings to the Academy of Medicine in 1821. And he described all of these people had this sort of leathery appearance in the back of their throat that had cut off their breathing and ultimately led to the death in most of the cases. And so diphtheria just means it's the Greek word for leather. This is the the pseudomembrane, the sticky, horrible thing that you get in the back of the throat. Uh, in a lot of cases of diphtheria, in most cases of diphtheria, I, I, I love this etymology. I really do. Um, there's kind of a lost art, I think, Josh, nowadays of describing the course of an illness. A lot of that is because, you know, we have medications and stuff now that actually alter the course of an illness. But this was the thing back in the 17, 1800s, even the early 1900s, was describing the clinical course of a disease. This is where we gathered a lot of information just from these kind of storytelling type of case reports of pathogenesis, how a disease started and where it ended up, including, you know, whether it ended in in death or whether it resolved. I, I love these stories so so much and um i love even more that this is like a descriptive term you can imagine exactly what it feels like to have diphtheria if you imagine like a leather like a a a thing of hide just sitting at the back of your throat and you're trying to go just like that and you know it's a lot better than turning to the internet who would have named this choky mcchoke yeah No, no, no turning to the internet to name scientific stuff, even though we scientists aren't the best. Well, maybe you stopped being the best when they took away the rights of first naming to the discoverer of the disease. Instead, it's compounds 346 worked on by a team, whereas French physician just said, looks like leather. I'm going to call this disease leather. But interestingly, Brett Tenu also recorded the very first successful use of tracheotomy in a case of diphtheria. Now, this isn't the first tracheotomy that had ever been done, but it was the first that managed to successfully treat what had otherwise been a largely untreatable disease. Now, a tracheotomy, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is basically cutting an opening in the trachea and inserting a tube through that opening to allow air 
and secretions to move through. It's giving yourself a little voice box, like you see the cigarette people talk through. So if you, if you reach around to your own throat and just feel down to the part that is a little bit stiffer, like when you squeeze, it doesn't have quite as much give to it. That is a cartilage, cartilaginous-like structure which opens right onto your airway. So if you have something above that level blocking your airway like a strip of leather and you jam something sharp underneath, all of a sudden, just like a balloon, air hisses out. If there's any obstructions, they can get out. It's not ideal because you do still have a hole in your throat, which will very rapidly fill blood. But if you have a blocked airway, it will prevent you from suffocating at least long enough for you know, medical professionals to take the next steps. Yeah, and this is still, this type of emergency tracheotomy is still practiced. You know, if you get somebody at a steakhouse or something and they're choking, the the reason that it works is because most particles, things that obstruct your throat, actually land well above that line that Josh just described. So you're able to kind of sneak under it and create a new passage for air to go through. And you can even do this, believe it or not, with a pen. You can just like stab the pen in and then remove the middle and you can use it to breathe through the casing of the pen, um, you know, and, and get air in there and get people moving. Uh, yeah, the nice thing about that area, if you hit the right spot, is it's not very vascular. You don't get a lot of bleeding. Um, and you can place a temporary tube in there, a tracheostomy, um, if you need to. And then, you know, after you get the obstruction out, you just close the hole and then you just breathe like normal. So this worked because in many cases of diphtheria, the the kid's airway was super, super tiny. The pseudomembrane would form and then they'd have either a choking episode or they'd just not be able to breathe enough through it. And they, you know, slowly suffocate to death, which is horrifying. And why we got the Spanish name Garotillo, which is the little Garrett. And it's, it's that piano wire with two handles that you use to execute people in mob style. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we've, we've seen it in like spy movies and stuff. It's really creepy. Um, so it does. It, it feels like that kind of a choking. Now, the neat thing about this is in, in some cases of diphtheria, if you're able to provide that respiratory support, even before we had antibiotics, there is a possibility that diphtheria will kind of go come along and then you'll be in really dire straits. And then if you're able to breathe, you can maybe survive the illness and fight back the bacteria with your own, you know, immune system. And then the pseudomembrane goes away over time and, you know, you kind of resolve. But this was actually the minority of cases. So all he was trying to do, he said, okay, I can't fight the disease. Maybe I can temporize for a while picture him just getting really frustrated. Sacre bleu, what is this? How on earth did I miss? Such a sweet succulent trachea. First I cut off his head. It won't hurt because you're dead. And you're so... Well, no. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> okay, people. That's Louie from The Little Mermaid. The chef that tried to kill Sebastian. No, no, they're not dead. He was trying to save their lives. Stop it. You know, he was trying to temporize. He was just trying to get him to breathe. So this gave us our first 
pseudo treatment for pseudo membranes. Ha ha ha. But but we still didn't really know why people were dying from this other than loss of an airway until around 1884 when Loeffler showed that the corny bacteria produces a toxin. And this was the very first description ever of a bacterial exotoxin, or basically the bacteria makes a poison that it then Amazon drones out to the rest of the environment. That's true. It, and and Loeffler did something really specific. So we had come through in this era, we had come through a little bit of germ theory and you know, von Leeuwenhoek had created his beautiful microscopes and we were able to see these small bacteria and we were propagating this knowledge, this brand new knowledge that these tiny little microorganisms are at the heart of a lot of diseases. But Loeffler took the extra step and actually showed that there was a toxin that diphtheria makes and that the toxin itself uh, was the, the perpetrator of the disease. Now, this is a real important point. With a toxin-producing bacteria, the bacteria itself may not necessarily be yeah, noticed. You know, it's, it's the f- most frustrating thing in the world because you can, even with antibiotics, if all you have are antibiotics, you can wipe the bacteria out. And if you still have the presence of the toxin, then that toxin is still going around and wrecking your body, like attacking cells. So the bacteria is still producing toxins and just ramming it through your cells and tearing apart your cells tearing and up helping my cells form the pseudomembrane I'm and all this. You. And I produce a toxin, <laughs> you feel it too. Yeah. And no matter what uh, I do, can't breathe in pain. But it's not yeah. the flu. Dun, 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 dun. Oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the toxin actually gets into cells and starts inactivating a bunch of vital processes that the cell needs in order to survive. For you nerds out there, it inactivates elongation factor two, which we need in order to actually, you know, make DNA. Um, It binds to a membrane receptor that allows, you know, cell entry. So now, you know, the, the bacteria can actually get into cells. And then it can exploit a growth factor precursor as a receptor. Um, and, you know, kind of screw up the, uh, the the way that cells bind to one another. So let's, before I move on in our historical wandering around, let's briefly talk yeah. some of these symptoms. As I mentioned, it does tear up a heart because you can get myocarditis, but the symptoms usually mm-hmm. start two to seven days after you've been infected. So it's about a week of incubation. And you'll usually see, and correct me if I'm wrong, Santosh, low-grade fevers, about mm-hmm. 100 degrees, maybe a little above. You can see a bluish skin coloration, a cyanosis, which comes from, you know, some of your airway getting cut off. You'll have a sore throat and hoarseness (laughs) and cough, uh, rapid breathing. You could have a foul smelling and Mm -hmm. a little bit of a bloody nasal discharge. And your lymph nodes on the side of your Mm -hmm. neck can swell up and just give you this big old chubby cheek looking uh, kind of picture. It's, It's called a bull neck. Your neck gets thick as a bull. Bullfrog neck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh yeah, and some people will say bullfrog, like you oh. know, when the bullfrog puffs out, it's you know, that does the ribbit ribbit thingy. Yeah. 
So this is everything that you're describing is respiratory diphtheria. And there's a combination of things that'll kill you here. Part of it is the bacteria producing the toxin and tearing up your cells uh, when they're with you. And when it tears then, up those cells, those dead cells form yeah. this thick gray coating that just sort of hangs out. And that's what the pseudomembrane is. Yeah. It's all your dead, healthy tissue that can't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it turns into the slime. And the worst thing about it is you can't just scrape it away because it's adherent to the because tissue, it's still you, know, you. The, it's still throat you. and stuff uh, <laughs> well but it's also fibrinous and kind of gelatinous so if you try to just take the the pseudo membrane off it'll actually bleed and now you know you're choking on blood which is even worse but you've got the toxin you've got dead cells and that's clogging up but then you also have your own lymph nodes kind of choking you because they're just trying to react and isolate the diphtheria bacilli and actually destroy them but they become so overloaded with inflammatory cells and bacteria that they really can't do much more without actually cutting off your air supply now, cause you, because because right of this deck. thick mucus in the lungs and the throat you can also get these coughing fits and it can be a pretty distinctive cough uh i don't know if we're going to lump this together with pertussis but there is a little bit of a whoop there it is you know, a beatbox. You kind of cough on the way in and the way out, so there's that, you know, type of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sounds fun, but it's it's really really not. Um, this is all thanks to this restricted airway that you have from the pseudo membrane, and Josh. In some cases, the infection will actually descend, so it'll get into your larynx past your, you know, the, the oropharynx up at the top. And then in some really bad cases, in a lot of bad cases, you can get tracheobronchial infection where that pseudomembrane even gets down, you know, to the level below your neck into the, the big trachea and then into the two bronchii. And now the airways get small really quickly. So if you build up a membrane down there, you're going to just cut off the route to the lungs in no time flat. And we mentioned this does tend to be, by and large, a disease much more of children. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see it in the elderly because they're equally susceptible. But for some reason, you know, this, this disease just likes kids. Well, it's not only that. Uh, you know, if you get it as an adult, there's the off chance that your airway is big enough to, you know, that you don't get choked and you can kind of you know, choke your way through until you actually clear it. Um, as long as you don't get some of the systemic manifestations where it attacks your heart and causes myocarditis or attacks your, you know, Muscle, brain. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and brain is the other one, you know, you get neurogenic toxicity. Um, and those things are equally deadly. The myocarditis, it attacks the cells which dictate the rhythm of your heart. So you actually can be perfectly healthy and then get diphtheria. You know, your heart starts beating in a funky way and all of a sudden you're not pumping blood effectively or you go into one of those really bad arrhythmias that you can't recover from and you die that way. Um, but yeah, the, the neural stuff, you know, you get this paralysis of the soft palate, uh, you know, the, the cranial nerves that actually help 
hold your throat open when you take a deep breath. And this can also weaken those muscles so that your throat literally collapses in on itself uh, and you can't breathe. Jumping back in time to our Victorian era, we discovered this bacterial exotoxin in 1884. But we still had nothing to do other than just grabbing a pen and cutting a hole in someone's throat. And that that really wasn't curative. That was just like, let's give you a way to breathe while you try desperately to fight off this infection. You know what your head is missing? More holes. <laughs> well, it's closer so to the neck. But then yeah, 1890 so. comes along and Emile von no. <laughs> showed that the blood yeah. products of guinea pigs contained a substance that could prevent some of these harmful effects of the diphtheria toxin when the guinea pigs were re-exposed. So if they got through the infection, guinea pigs apparently weren't made terribly sick by this. And then if you re-expose them, to lethal doses of the bacteria and toxin, their immune systems went into overdrive and made a special little cure. Then they showed that if you took this cure or if you took these guinea pig antibodies and injected them into a different guinea pig or animal, such as a horse, then that newly injected animal would become immune or would be treated in response to the toxin. So they called this magical guinea pig blood antitoxin and the treatment of infecting a guinea pig, infecting it even more, and then stealing its blood to give it to other creatures was known as serum therapy. Von Behring would win the very first Nobel Prize in medicine in 1901 for doing this. Think about that. The very first (laughs) Nobel Prize ever given out in medicine was done to treat diphtheria by stealing blood. It is, and... You know, this is what we talk about when we say, well, what have animal studies really done? Well, it's done things like this. Not all the time, but with a significant rate. Our deepest, deepest thanks to every single animal that unwillingly, unfortunately, gives their life uh, to help forward medical science. In Peru, a gourmet menu item. In Germany, the source of a cure for diphtheria. (laughs) So moving on a little bit later, so 1901, he got the Nobel Prize for this antitoxin serum therapy. In 1897, German scientist Paul Ehrlich, who would also win a Nobel Prize in 1908, developed a standardized unit of measure for diphtheria toxin. So before, you could say, here is three guinea pigs worth of blood. Maybe that will be enough. (laughs) One might be like, well, I have two guinea pigs worth of blood and a little bit of dog blood. And we ran it through a horse and someone else would be like, well, I have two goats and a sheep. You know, there was all sorts of settlers of Catan disease. But the real problem in in using antitoxin to treat diphtheria resulted that the amount of antitoxin in serum varied greatly among different samples. You could have super immune guinea pig and then you could have like a guinea pig who had spent all his days smoking and eating cakes and not being very exercised and you didn't have a reliable amount. So physicians couldn't depend on the potency of any given container of antitoxin when treating a patient because there was no common standard. So German scientist Ehrlich developed a standardized unit of measure so every diphtheria antitoxin would be equally effective or equally ineffective, I guess, depending on when it was made and when you were treating. The neat thing about this is it extended to other antitoxins that would be created around the same time or afterwards 
um, including, for instance, like botulinum antitoxin. So this standardized measure was not just applicable to one disease. It would be helpful for measuring the amount of antibody in any, you know, immune globulin based antitoxin. Now, the main way that we make these antitoxins today involves a lot less guinea pigs and a lot more horses. And in fact, <laughs> nay, hey, hey. In fact, <laughs> this led to a little bit of trouble at one point because when horse blood or horse serum was being used to make antitoxin, one batch or a couple batches here and there would get contaminated and the horse would get sick and its blood would still be sent out. And this would create something known at the time as serum sickness. Are you familiar with this, Santo? I am. I've thankfully never seen it because I've never had to administer like a horse antiserum, but I'm very, very familiar yeah, so with it. We don't see serum sickness really isn't a thing that exists that much in anymore. Anymore. We still see a little yeah. bit of it in <laughs> super rural communities that have to use older antitoxins because we do still use some animals to make them, but a lot of the process now is automated and involves, I'm saying, clones of Keanu Reeves locked up. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> uh, All right. So, yeah, essentially what happens is you're getting horse antibody. Uh, antibodies across mammals are pretty similar, but not perfectly so. So what tends to happen is our native antibodies recognizes the horse antibody as a harmful substance. And now you attack the antiserum and the immune system flares up and you feel sick as if you've been infected with something new. So you you get this, you know, flu-like symptom and you feel crappy and it can get quite severe. Uh, so None of which is related to diphtheria. No. But it's, no, it's that if you get too much bad horse blood, your condition is no longer stable. Because mm -hmm. horses... No, God damn it, I missed it. <laughs> yeah, you can be stable. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in 1926, we observed that animals tended to have much better immunity to diphtheria when an injected toxoid wasn't given into their whole blood, but just into a local inflammatory area. You give them a little, a little boost in one area, and that primes the immune system to recognize it. And the scientist who discovered this, Glenny, began to add substances like aluminum salts to the antitoxin to help trigger a larger response more quickly. And today we call these extra little substances adjuvants, and they're used in several types of vaccines to increase the effectiveness of the, of the vaccine. These adjuvants can also on occasion be what the anti-vax community worries get so up in arms about being toxic. They're not there in large enough levels to be toxic. What they are is they promote a faster immune response with less of the dangerous uh, component of disease in it so your immune system can recognize it. In no way, shape, or form does it cause any sort of neurological disease or conditions or poison. That's what these adjuvants do. It is. And the same thing can be said, you know, when this uh, vaccine was actually being developed, uh, we took toxin and actually turned it into toxoid. When you were able to get lots and lots of toxin together, 
um, you could prepare the toxin, uh, kind of change the shape of it using formaldehyde, and then you could re-isolate that toxoid, that new changed protein, out of the uh, the formaldehyde that caused the change. And then, you know, you mix it with your adjuvant and now you have your prepared vaccine. Again, the formaldehyde is used to convert the toxin to a, a different shape of the protein so that it's, uh, you know, more immunogenic. But that formaldehyde, once the vaccine is completely prepared, it is gone or it's there in such trace amounts that there's actually more formaldehyde just circulating in your blood you know, made as a byproduct of your liver. Now, how is this transmitted? Well, obviously it's a respiratory disease and it tends to occur through the air when an infected individual coughs or sneezes, breathing in droplets that could have the infection. Now, contact with any lesions on the skin can also lead to transmission, but skin-based diphtheria, while it's horrifying to look at, by and large is pretty rare and almost never fatal. In fact, I can't think of a single case of, of cutaneous diphtheria that's ever killed anybody, although there's been a lot of respiratory that has caused abnormal heart rhythms that you can see early on. You can have the bull neck uh, requiring intubation and tracheostomy. In fact, Santosh, did you know that a, you'll appreciate this, mm. because diphtheria was predominantly the disease of childhood, and we had already talked about the invention of the trachea, or the use of tracheotomy for it, in 1858, Eugene Bouchut uh, developed the method of endotracheal intubation to open oh. the airway. So, oh, nice. So like the tube that we use nowadays. Intubation was invented by a pediatrician to treat a pediatric disease. And it is one of the most common procedures that many physicians still have to do in training and even beyond. All of us, you know, who are working, especially in a hospital setting, emergency room setting, we should know how to do a proper intubation. And then our other great intubators nowadays are our EMS, our first responders. Those guys are also trained in how to how to put an endotracheal. Yeah, so this method is less invasive, can bypass the pseudomembrane and open the airway because you're just kind of sliding this tube right past the membrane, even if you're using it like one of those doggy doors to just get a little bit past that flap. And it tended to result in a higher survival rate because also you weren't shoving a sharp object into somebody's neck. Although we'll still do that when the occasion calls for it. <laughs> when you absolutely need to, yeah. So that's that's really cool. I, I'm kind of, th that's so neat because nowadays, you know, we don't see diphtheria here anymore in the United States. Um, in any significant numbers, thanks to vaccination. But the indications for intubation, including like blockage and restriction and all these kind of things, the fact that this disease kind of bred the uh, the whole intubation thing, you know, laryngeal intubation, um, that makes me a little bit happy because, you know, that extended to a whole bunch of other diseases. So it was, the technique was a lot more yeah, helpful so let's talk than a little bit just about the treatment. Theory. And what, you know, how do you actually treat diphtheria? Because the one thing I do want to mm -hmm. really bring up, and I know you'll likely get to this later, but just giving antibiotics, even if you've cured the diphtheria bacteria, does zero to treat the toxin. So if the bacteria has mm -hmm. already released the toxin and formed the pseudomembrane, 
you can kill every last living bacteria in your body and you will still die of diphtheria toxin. Yeah, that's kind of the scary part of this disease is it's really hard to get on top of it. Um, the antibiotics have three real benefits. First, you're killing the organism. So you're stopping the active disease process. Um, it does slow the spread of local infection. So for something like cutaneous uh, disease, it's really, really useful. Um, if you're early enough in the disease, you know, you can prevent the bacteria going from your upper airway down to your lower airway or getting to your heart or nerves. Um, and then finally, it's really super important. It reduces transmission. So if you don't have Carinobacterium sitting in the back of your throat, then you can no longer like cough it up and spread it to other people, which is super, super important in a disease that has this kind of a mortality rate of like up to 20%. So those are the three major benefits, but you're absolutely right, Josh. On top, aside from that, if you don't jump on the patient early with diphtheria antitoxin, and it's really important to say that the, even the antitoxin has to be given early in the disease, then that that kid is in for a really, really bad time. And, you know, you can treat with the antibiotic, you can give the antitoxin, but you may have to sit with the child, like in the intensive care unit, just providing respiratory support until the the child is able to clear enough of the toxin and, and, and not be compounding the bacteria anymore that the inflammation in the throat Just goes down and the pseudomembrane goes and about five to ten percent of those affected will die just those now the good news is in 2015 only 4500 cases were reported worldwide down from down from about a hundred thousand in 1980 and before 1980, it was about a million cases a year. So worldwide, really, really well in genius. Yeah. And one of uh, one of our stocking stars this year is going to mm -hmm. be the story of one of the most famous treatments of uh, diphtheria, which is the serum run to gnome yeah. that led to a statue of a husky in Central Park, known as Balto. Well, then, what should people be looking for? Who's at risk for diphtheria? And where in the world do we see it? When is this something I need to be concerned about? Yeah, in today's day and age, if you grow up in the United States and you follow vaccination protocols, you do not have to worry about diphtheria in the United States and in most industrialized countries. So this vaccine is so beautifully effective that if you have, you know, greater than 90% vaccine coverage, um, it's better if you're closer to 93, you, you won't see diphtheria at all. And so, you know, that's really just a beautiful, beautiful vaccine. Um, one of the most successful that we've ever had. Where you are going to find it is any place that doesn't have vaccines available, no access to vaccines. But the really tough part about this, Josh, is that there's going to be many kids and adults that are carrying diphtheria in their throat, but they're asymptomatic. And so they're transient carriers. So in an outbreak type of situation, you'll see, you know, people coughing and you'll, you'll see a lot of people with the disease. It'll, it'll pass from person to person by these coughs, sneezes. As long as there are bacteria available, 
you know, they are hyper virulent. Once a person's sick, you know, even if they get better, the organisms can persist two weeks, you know. So that means that that person can still pass on this bacteria. For the cutaneous uh, diphtheria, we still have occasional uh, outbreaks of these. And unfortunately, they're in our homeless population or other populations that are kind of destitute because in that case, you need to get the diphtheria kind of inoculated um, and give it time to grow. And then it creates that like non-healing ulcer that just kind of sticks around forever. We had a major epidemic uh, in the former Soviet Union in 1990. um, And by 1994, it had gone to all 15 newly independent states of the former Soviet Union. Um, And then, you know, when we started a good vaccination campaign, then those cases fell sharply. We're vaccinated against diphtheria as kids. If you follow most every single guideline around the planet, Um, so it's usually given with uh, vaccination against tetanus and pertussis. Um, So please do get that vaccine. It is safe. It is a toxoid. Um, There's no live organisms in there at all. Um, So it's very safe. Even for immunocompromised people can get it. And guys, if you vaccinate, I'm talking about going from, you know, a risk of one of the most deadly diseases on the planet that was number three killer worldwide of children prior to vaccination, all the way down to this disease just disappearing. So... It's it's absolutely a wonderful vaccine. Back it's vital, saving lives, and it's keeping kids healthy. So that's it for this week's Around the World in 80 Plagues. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually or hopefully financially, links to do that are in the show notes along with resources for researching the episode. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Fisher. And until next time, as always... No! You get back on! Get back! No! No! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.